Good morning, everyone. It's a great sight from up here. It's good to see you all again. Thank you, music team, for leading us so well and faithfully putting rich words in our mouths so that we can sing to one another songs, hymns, and spiritual songs and sing back to the Lord the praises he is due. It's a, it's a privilege to do that, and you've served us well in that. Thank you, Steve, for leading us to the throne of grace and for Mike for leading us to the table. It's great to be together again. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me this time to Psalm chapter 126. We'll come back to Matthew. The plan, Lord willing, is to come back to the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been walking through the last number of months. I'll come back to that in the fall. We're going to take a break for the summer and do something a little bit different. But this morning, I want to go to the Psalms. So Psalm 126. There are many experiences in life that prompt mixed emotions. Think of a father walking his daughter down the aisle, marriage. If you know someone who's done that, or maybe you've done that yourself, you've heard or you've experienced the fact that it is a a time of mixed emotions. There is sadness in that moment, but there's also joy. There is nostalgia and there is pride, all mixed into one. Or dropping a child off at school for the first time, whether it's kindergarten or university, doesn't really matter. It's a feelings factory for a parent. Or attending a funeral for a Christian brother or sister in Christ. Your heart is broken with grief and yet swelling with hope as well, all at the same time. These are circumstances, these types of circumstances, they're beyond simple sentiment. You can't boil them down to just one simple emotion. They are mixed emotions. They spark a variety of simultaneous emotions to be recognized and understood and dealt with. I find this morning such an occasion, and maybe you do as well. There's certainly relief as we gather together after being forced apart for a long period of time. There's certainly relief and there's gratitude and joy and cautious optimism and excitement. There's all of that for sure. But if I'm honest, there's also a gnawing cynicism. There is a deep fatigue. There's also a resigned helplessness. I feel it's like a What it might feel like to be a boxer after nine rounds where someone got the better of you getting up for a tenth off the stool. Oh, this again. Here we go. These are mixed emotions. These are experiences of mixed emotions. And we have to ask the question, what do we do with all this? How do we process all that's going on and how do we move faithfully forward in the midst of this chaotic emotional time? I mean, we have to ask, why bother getting up off the stool in the corner? Why bother going back in? So we want to explore this morning, how do we move forward in this time of mixed emotions? And Psalm 126 is going to help us navigate this complex moment in the life of our church family. And in it, we're going to find an example of God's people coming back together after a long time apart and crying out to the Lord in joy and in sorrow, in hope and in regret, in excitement and in fatigue, all at once. They, too, are experiencing a time of mixed emotions, and we're going to learn from them this morning. Now, I'm assuming you found your way there to Psalm 126, and the psalm begins by looking back in time to the kindness of God in the deliverance of his people, in bringing them back together. God has been kind, he's been providential, and they praise him for it. Verse 1 says this, 
When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, that's Jerusalem, the Hebrew people, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, we're not told explicitly in this passage the circumstances that the captive ones of Zion were being restored from or what they were being restored to. We're not told. But it's likely a post-exilic psalm, which means it's after the exile. If you know that story, you know that God's people in the promised land, they were disobedient to God time and time and time again. And God sent prophets saying, smarten up, come back in line with me, smarten up, repent, come back in line, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to discipline you. And finally, God made good on that promise and sent a foreign superpower, Babylon, to come in and take over. And they destroyed Jerusalem, and they carried away God's people off into exile, a disciplinary timeout to his people. For 70 years, they spent away from the promised land. And then when their timeout was done, God moved in the heart of a pagan ruler to say, you know what, I'm going to let God's people go back to their homeland. And that's recorded for us in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. As God's people returned to their homeland, this psalm was written to commemorate that moment that God released them and let them come back to their land. So I think, and as we'll see as we go through the psalm, that's probably when this psalm was written, post-exilic. That's the, the circumstances surrounding their return. But whatever the case, as we look at verse 1, the psalm is celebrating what the Lord did. Right? You'll notice that in the opening line. It's what the Lord did. It's nothing that God's people did. God brought them back. God restored their well-being. God returned them to their fortunes. God released them from captivity. It was all him. It wasn't them. And they can hardly believe their eyes. It, it says, we were like those who dream. You know, they had, they had imagined the moment when they would go back to Jerusalem, when they would see their homeland, and when they would be released and they'd be walking toward Judah and they would see the, the ruins on the horizon. They had longed for that day when they could go back. And now that it's here, it happened so quickly and so dramatic was the change and so invigorating was the freedom, you say to one another, pinch me. This can't be real. It's like we're dreaming. I've got to be imagining this. It's just overwhelming to them. And naturally, this, this overwhelming feeling of joy, it can't be contained. It's the cause of celebration. Look at verse 2. It says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Notice the tense of those verbs. They're passive. The, the joy and the, the laughter, it's like forced upon them. It's given to them. Because of what's happening, they can't help themselves. The laughter is coming out, the joy, the celebration. It has to be done because of what they're experiencing. They can't contain it. You know, songs had to be sung and dances had to be danced. Celebration had to be acknowledged. It just had to happen. And the joy was so great, as we keep reading, it couldn't even be contained within the borders of Israel. It spilled out to the nations around. Verse 2 continues, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. Even the people around them, they see these, this ragtag crew walking back and resettling in their land, and they can't help but say, Wow, the Lord, not just any Lord, their Lord, Yahweh, has done great things for that people. You got to think some of those nations around them were probably had the most to lose with the people coming back. They were probably enjoying the land while Israel was gone in that time out. And now that Israel is coming back in, they're pushed back out and they say, God has done great things for his people. He's done great things for them. As we read verse 3, we see that Israel just had to agree with that assessment. The Lord has done great things for us. 
says the psalmist. We are glad. In English, that seems so anticlimactic. After all of that, we are glad. <laughs> that doesn't really translate it well. It's, we will rejoice. This is a satisfying, complete gladness. You're right. The Lord has done great things for us. He has preserved us. He has delivered us. He's starting to regather us. We are glad indeed. That God had preserved and delivered and began to regather his people in their land, it prompted celebration in this psalm. Well, they had been forced apart and separated from their place of corporate worship, and we need to understand that. Sometimes that's lost on us who live under the New Covenant in the New Testament times. But to be removed from their land was not only a, an unsettling displacement. Jerusalem, the holy city, had been destroyed. The temple had been torn down. That was the place they met with God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. It doesn't have the same impact on us, but for them, the temple is where, the, where God uniquely dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And for that to be ruined, for them to be separated from the temple, was like they'd been separated from God himself. So it's a big deal. And so as they're returning and they get to rebuild, and as they come back to a place of corporate worship, Israel had now, by God's hand, they had started to regather, and it was joyful. It was joyful. And I think certainly we can relate to that in this psalm. You know, like Israel in Psalm 126, we should be looking behind us and experience that joy of preservation. That God has been good. He has preserved us. We were scattered, and now we're beginning to regather by God's hand and by his kindness. And we look back over the past year and a half, and, and if we look closely and, and prayerfully, we can see God's fingerprints in that he protected us, he provided for us, and now he seems to be delivering us. And we say, joy, joy, celebrate. I'm sure you're aware that there are many churches today that have already or are on the brink of closing their doors right now because there's disunity, there's infighting, there's financial troubles, whatever else. And we say the Lord has spared us from all of that here at Oak Ridge. And so we look back with joy that he has preserved us. Thank you, Lord. And on top of that, we know that this year, I hope you know that as well, but we as leadership here at the church, we know that this year people have come to Christ. He's still working. Others have ex expressed a desire to be baptized. You know, others are finding conviction of and victory over sin because of this time. The Lord is still at work here. And so we can look back in spite of the wreckage of the last year and a half and say, the Lord has preserved us and he was still working. He's been faithful in preserving us. And we can see that as we look behind us. And, and that should bring us laughter and joyful shouting. You know, thankful celebration for all that God has done. Honestly, if we can't look back and say the Lord has done great things for us, we are glad. And that says more about our blindness than God's kindness. It really does. He's been so good to us that we pinch each other. We must be dreaming. We're coming back together and we celebrate. But alas, if that was only, the only emotion we're feeling right now, it would be so simple. It's not, it's not only the joy of preservation we're experiencing at a time like this as we look behind us, but there's also... There's also the ache of incompletion. The ache of incompletion we feel as we look around us. Not only are we looking behind us and experiencing that joy of preservation, but we also look around us and there's this ache of incompletion. And long before us, back to our psalm, Israel felt this as well. Verse 4. It says, Restore our captivity, Lord. 
That's what my translation says. That's a little bit misleading for us. Really what the idea is of the Hebrew is, is calling for God to do it again. Do it again, Lord. Just like you brought some of us back from exile, bring the rest. Bring the rest of us. That's what they're saying. The NIV, which you might have in your lap, it, it renders this line, restore our fortunes, Lord. In the fullest sense, bring us back. You know, the, and the paralleled line, it adds a little clarity and color as Hebrew poetry does. Look at the rest of verse 4. It says, restore our captivity, Lord, as the streams in the south. A bit of a geography lesson. South of Jerusalem, south of Judah in the Promised Land was that vast wilderness, that desert, the Negev, where scarcely a trickle of water could be found. But once in a while, in the rainy season, the skies would open and rain would pour down and those trickles in the Negev would become these gushing, violent, sometimes even destructive rivers flowing through this parched land. So really we have the psalmist here calling for God to open the floodgates. He says open the floodgates of the blessing like you do in the Negev once in a while when the rainwaters come and pour. That little trickle of Israelites that made their way back from Babylon. We want to see the gush of all the people coming back. We want to see the whole thing open the floodgates Lord and continue to restore your people. That's what he's calling for. So we see while there was joy of preservation as God's people, they looked behind them, there was also the ache of incompletion as they looked around them. You know, as thrilled as they were that God had begun to bring them back together, they still longed to complete the family. They still had people that were still back in Babylon that they missed, that they wanted God to bring back as well. And seriously, look around us. Like, look at these empty chairs. We rejoice today, and rightly so, but at the same time, we look at these empty chairs and the brothers and sisters in Christ that they represent, the people we know, because we know we're creatures of habit. We know where people sit, right? At least we knew where they sat before we got empty. We know who sits there and who's there and who sits there. And for whatever reason, they're not here. And we say, Lord, complete the family of God. Open the floodgates. We praise you for the trickle that's here, but we want the whole family. We want everyone. When I was younger, I used to go to, I remember going grocery shopping with my parents to Costco. Why does a young man go to Costco with his parents except for the samples, right? The little taste testers. At the ends of every aisle, they would have workers of Costco giving out little samples. And I remember as a child lining up and getting my sample. If it was something good, like a dessert or a cookie, I'd enjoy it. But it was a two-edged sword a little bit. I would enjoy it and it was good. But behind the worker, there'd be this box of the product that I'm trying. And I know my parents are never buying that. I know it. I know that that treat, the dessert I love so much that I'm enjoying right now, I'm not going to get it. And in a way, I feel like that this morning. I'm transported back to Costco. This is a beautiful sample. I love it. But I want the whole box. I want the whole thing. And I know you guys do as well. And so we say, Lord, open the floodgates. We praise you. You preserved us. Thank you so much. But we ache because of the incompletion we feel. And it's not only our church family, right? The people that we miss, we do want them. The people that maybe were on the fence when this started happening, they were new to the faith, where they were babes in Christ, and now they were sheep wandering without a flock, wandering without a shepherd. And we pray like crazy, Lord, preserve them, bring them back into the protection of the fold. But at the same time, we also pray for those who during the last year and a half have run into the end of themselves. Everything they tried to control in their life has been ripped away from them. They've never darkened the door of a church before. But maybe they've walked by this weird white building day after day with a pointy roof. Say, what is this place? 
And as they've come to the end of themselves, maybe there's someone at their workplace or in their class that comes to Oak Ridge, and that person seems to be handling this time a little bit better. They said something before about this church family. We pray for them as well. So not only, Lord, open the floodgates and restore our church family, but Father, we want to see people in here that we've never seen before as well. Open the floodgates, Lord. Make that trickle a running, gushing river. That's our call. That's what we want. That's our longing. And that was the people for Israel as well. You can feel it in this psalm. So as we, we look behind us, you know, we, we also look around us. We look behind at what was, and we look around at what is. And as we experience the joy of preservation, we also endure the ache of incompletion. And it's mixed emotions. It really is. But we're not done yet. The psalm's not over. We also look before us, and we anticipate the toil of reconstruction. We see what lies ahead and know that there's a lot of rebuilding work to be done. Verses 5 and 6 of this psalm says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. One of the reasons that many, including myself, are pretty convinced that this is a post-exilic psalm after the exile is the references here to the hardness of farming and how it was going to be. Remember, if they had been away for seven decades, their land had gone unworked and untilled, and now they're returning to a hardened, wild farmland that they're going to have to work. They're going to have to toil to get it back up and running. It's going to take a lot of sweat of the brow, tears of frustration work. It's going to take a lot of work, that type of labor. But I love in those two verses, the Lord inspires the psalmist to weave encouragement, right? You notice that as well. There will be success eventually. It's going to be hard work, no doubt about it. But there's going to be success. Fruit will come with perseverance. The reward will be given for the work. He says specifically, they will reap with joyful shouting and shall indeed come again with a shout of joy bringing sheaves. So the people of God, as they've come back, they've started to regather in their land. Going forward, the Lord will be faithful to his people, he says. He's going to be faithful to them, just as he has been in the past. But that doesn't ease the work ahead. The labor necessary to rebuild life as they knew it before they were scattered. The farmland, yes, and and the psalmist uses that as an example. It's going to take a lot of work, but it was so much more than the farmland. They were coming to rebuild houses, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. And it was more than just infrastructure. They, they also had to rebuild their religious lives, their worship practices, their social structures. They had to unlearn habits they picked up in Babylon. Remember, 70 years, some people returning had never seen Jerusalem before. They had come from Babylon. Some, maybe some of the older people, had gone. They remember Judah, and now they're coming back, and they've got to work to rebuild what it was. Many, in many ways, some of the people returning were more Babylonian than they were Hebrew. And they had to unlearn all of this and rebuild what it meant to be the people of God in their land. It was tons of work ahead of them. They had lots of work to do. But God says, it will pay off. You will bring your sheaves. Stay at the labor. It will pay off. There will be reward. There will be restoration. And we know at Oak Ridge that that we've got work to do. We've got work to do ahead of us that could be tough and tear-inducing labor. We've got some rebuilding ahead of us. The rebuilding of relationships that have maybe been put on hold or strained over the last year and a half. 
some people we're starting to get to know and then we've been separated from, we have to rebuild those relationships. And be almost strangers, in a sense. It's been that long. We're going to have to do some work rebuilding those. We have to do the reestablishment of habits and disciplines that have been lost or abandoned. That's been tough because, you know, as this year and a half has gone on, the predictability and routine, if you thrive in routine, which is where, you know, spiritual disciplines thrive, when that's taken away, it's hard to be disciplined. And now as we come back to gathering again, we have to rebuild those disciplines, rebuild what it looks like to kill sin and pursue Christ-likeness. And we're going to have to reorient ourselves to the pursuit of Christ-likeness in community. That's going to be difficult. Because in North America, we're individualistic by nature. We like to do things by ourselves. That's completely foreign to the New Testament. The Christian is part of a body. We function in a body that helps us move toward Christ-likeness, to build a church, to build a body and strengthen one another. And we've had a year and a half where we've kind of had to do it ourselves. And now we have to come back together and some of us are going to have to learn what it means to lay ourselves down for a brother or sister in Christ. To call one another on sin, to encourage one another, to carry one another's burdens. It's going to be a lot of work ahead of us to relearn and reorient ourselves to community pursuit of Christ-likeness. We've got adults that need care and attention and prayer and discipleship. We've got young adults and teens who need clarity and direction and correction. We've talked many times about the demonic lies that the world is preaching to our young people. Wholesale lies from the pit of hell. And we need to clarify things for them and bring them back, show them why what God says is demonstrably better than anything the world is saying. We've got children who need education and love and support. We've got a lot of work to do as a church family. Just like Israel did as they came back, there's a lot of rebuilding to do. And while it can be a little overwhelming, and I think you acknowledge that that's just the tip of the iceberg, what I said there. There's so much work to do, so many things even unseen. And while it can be a bit overwhelming, it's also an exciting opportunity for us to, to rethink what we do and how we do it and why we do it. We have an opportunity to prayerfully realign ourselves with what God has called us to do as a church and rebuild a version of Oak Ridge that is more faithful to that call than it was even two years ago. That is a privilege. And that's something we know that God will bless. Faithfulness to align ourselves with his call for a church family. God will bless that. We will bring our sheaves with joy. He will bring fruit for that. You may have heard of something called controlled burns in the forestry industry. Or I grew up on the prairies and we, I took part in some controlled burns where we would go into the field and you would, professionals guided, would light a fire and burn off a lot of the disease and rot and uh, dead fallen branches and material that had built up over time. And by allowing the fire to cleanse it, it would germinate the soil and it would leave room for fuller growth to come. It's, it, would, it would stimulate the ecosystem of that which was being burned. And I can't help but think that God has used a controlled burn in the church today. It's part of the life cycle. He comes in and he, he, he lets the fire roll through and he burns off what's not necessary to give us a chance to be even more productive than we were before the fire. We want to take that opportunity 
We want to work hard and align ourselves. But I have no doubt in my mind, friends, I have no doubt in my mind that two, five, ten years from now, we will look back on this time with more joy than we even have now and say, wow, did God ever burn off what was not necessary? We will be a stronger church in two, five, ten years from now than we were two years ago. I have no doubt in my mind, but we have to endure now. And we have to get to work, and there's work to be done. Prayerful work to say, what has God called us to do as a church? He's called us to worship him. He has called us to build up the body of Christ toward Christ's likeness that we can go out and evangelize the lost. That's it. That's what he's called us to do. Anything else is superfluous. Anything else that doesn't directly aid to those things, maybe God is burning them off. And we now have a chance to streamline this church, say we are going to be about the business of God and nothing else. So yeah, a lot of work ahead. But it's also an exciting opportunity for us if we do so prayerfully and, and follow his lead and trust in his faithfulness. Like Israel in Psalm 126, we at Oak Ridge are starting to regather after a time of forced separation. And like Israel, it's a time of mixed emotions, there's no doubt. I feel them and I'm sure that you do as well. We look behind us with joy because God has preserved us. Absolutely. We look around and experience the ache of incompletion. We want more. We want the family here. And we look before us and we see the toil of reconstruction. But we do experience all of those emotions under the canopy of God's faithfulness and his providence and sovereignty. We're experiencing these emotions. We're trying to figure out what to do. We're trying to understand how to move forward faithfully. But we understand that all of it is under the canopy of God's direction. All of it. He is never off his sovereign throne. He is still faithful, and so we still move forward with trust. We labor with hope. I want to invite and encourage you all here today, and all of you who are joining us online, to embrace the complexity of this time. It is a time of mixed emotions. There's joy, and there's fatigue, and there's toil, and there's frustration, and there's optimism, and there's pessimism, and there's cynicism, and there's everything all rolled into one. But we can embrace the complexity of this time and rejoice with longing and labor with hope. Rejoice with long. We, we do want to rejoice right now. That is right, and that is good to sing the praise of God for his faithfulness. We do want to rejoice right now. We have much to be thankful for, but we do so also with a sense of longing. We do so with a sense of longing, not only for our church to be fully restored, for those streams to become gushing rivers, and we do long for that, but we would be short-sighted as Christians if we did not see this hope of restoration. We look around and say, Lord, open the floodgates and restore this church. If we did not also spring forward into the end, when we ache for future restoration, that will be total. And we can use this. We, we labor because we want him to restore Oak Ridge Bible Chapel to what it was before and more. But we also labor knowing that a full restoration is coming. As Steve said, come Lord Jesus, come. We know that that is on the horizon. And so we do... Rejoice with longing for that time. We long for that kingdom to, to come. We long for the trump to sound, the Lord to descend. We long for the kingdom to be set up. We long for Jesus to sit on his throne. We long for sin to be eradicated. We long for all of that, even as we long for Oak Ridge to be restored in the interim. And we also want to get to work. We want to labor and rebuild. We want to see this place thrive. We want to see people saved. We want to see people baptized and mature and evangelized and serve. We want to see all of that. We want to see this place vibrant with the work of the ministry, the power of God the Spirit in the name of God the Son and for the glory of God the Father. That's what we want. That's what we're about. That's why we exist. So we want that to thrive. We labor as such with hope, knowing that God blesses faithful 
work. So we want to embrace the complexity of this season of our church's life, rejoice with longing, and labor with hope. And I want to invite and challenge everyone, everyone, every member of our church family to commit to praying for this local body at least once a week. And some of you already do that. And we're thankful for you. And it's because we're not under the delusion to think that it's not, it's because of those prayers that we are here today, because you've been praying. But we want to, going forward, we want to challenge you to pray once a week for this church family. And whatever you need to do to prompt that, to remember to do that, do that. A sticky note on your mirror, something in your car on the dashboard, bookmark in your Bible, whatever it takes. Pray for your church family, Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, specifically once a week. And I want you to pray three simple things out of Psalm 126. Thanks, please, and help. That's it. Once a week for Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Thanks, please, and help. God, thank you. Thank you for preserving us. Thank you for the work you've done in the past for this church family. Thank you for starting to bring us back together. Thank you, thank you, thank you. At the same time, please, please restore us. Please bring us back. Please bring more people that need to know the Lord. Please use us for your glory. And then finally, help. Help us labor with endurance. Help us labor with intentionality, thinking what do you want us to do next? What, how do you want us to look when we come out? Thanks, please, and help once a week for this church family. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. Lord, thank you. Please help us be faithful. We want to do that now as the music team comes to lead us in a, a closing song, but we want to pray that right now as a church family. Let's do that. Mm -hmm.